0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamise Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sara al about her book, Politics in the Crevices, Urban Design and the Making of Property Markets in Cairo and Istanbul, which was published by Duke University Press in 2023. Sara, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Lamise. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Of course. Um, So I'm an associate professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at SOAS, University of London, Um, trained in political science, um, but see myself as an interdisciplinary scholar, as you've probably seen from the book. Um, I straddle a number of fields, um, and probably the three that I sit at the intersection of would be... Uh, critical political economy, uh, political geography with a special interest in urbanism and infrastructure studies, and science, technology, society studies, so STS. Um, and I come to them as an ethnographer.
0: Wonderful. Um, and the, I, I think your description really um, sort of highlights uh, the sorts of things we're going to be talking about in a little bit. Um, but um, let me first ask you, how did you come to how did you come to write this book?
1: Um, well, um, started kind of a long time ago <laughs> uh, as an interest in inequality. So basically, uh, during my college years, uh, I was on doing um, my BA at the American University in Cairo. It was in the downtown Cairo's campus. Um, and it was, um, you know, a space where inequality gets pretty stark um, and pretty much in your face. And it stayed with me. Um, And so when I went to graduate school, I sought out um, classes on inequality, redistribution, from a variety of angles. Um, And uh, when I did that, I realized, you know, something started nagging at me that something was missing here in the conversation. Um, Because coming at this question, I saw sort of two two main strands the first one was like critical political economy uh where we were seeing this conversation around this thing that we were calling neoliberalism um that looked you know there were a lot of really interesting site insights about how neoliberalism works but there was an overall um you know i i say this There are obviously some exceptions, but overall, there was a sense of kind of this is a unidirectional project that is sort of a dispossessive wealth accumulating um, in one sense. And in another end um, of, of, you know, political economy, we were looking at a world that was really interested in what does free market economics do in the world. Um, And from there, really interesting insights about um, the inner workings of the market, but Um, I felt a really kind of silence on the political projects that were at work. And so I really wanted to kind of um, almost get these two conversations together, um, but also disrupt them in a particular way. And I thought, maybe the best way to do this is to ask questions about inequality and redistribution from places that were less familiar to us, right? Maybe the issue is that we keep going to the same sites, keep going to the same phenomena to answer this question. And so this idea of going to the less familiar was coming to me because simultaneously I was being exposed to the world of political geography, um, infrastructure studies, urban studies, so on, where I was Kind of, there was a whole world opening up of seeing the political, um, uh, what I call seeing the political where you least expect it, that kind of just blew my mind. Um, and so <clears throat> from there, it was, you know, uh, constantly being exposed to seeing political projects working through things like sewage networks and transoceanic shipping and, um, telecom satellites, and of course, urban design. Um, And I was like, oh, well, maybe if we start to talk about inequality and redistribution through that kind of lens, we'll see something interesting. And so basically, I decide, all right, let me write, you know, let me go explore um, urban design in, uh, you know, large cities in the Middle East and see what that will tell us. So that's how I got here.
0: Fantastic. Um, so the book sort of puts forth this very sophisticated, very nuanced argument, um, which is difficult to do justice to. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you to, if you can, sort of briefly explain to us what your central argument is in the book.
1: Of course. Um, to do this, I'm going to lean on some of my ethnography, um, just to you know, just to kind of uh, walk us through it a little bit. Um, slowly so that we get to the bigger argument. Um, so basically, the book opens up with this anecdote about um Haga Samia, who is uh, an interlocutor that I got to visit and see her home. And basically, um, she had been living in this neighborhood called Darb al-Ahmar in Cairo, uh, which is one of the neighborhoods uh, where I did my ethnography um, in 2011, 2012. And um, her home had been sitting for decades on one of the largest garbage dumps um, in Cairo. Um, And in the mid-1990s, the Aga Khan Foundation, uh, came to Darbil Ahmar and came to Cairo um, to, uh, with the aim of doing like a number of huge urban projects. And one of those projects was to transform this garbage dump into a huge green space, which came to be known as Al-Azhar Park. Uh, and another project was to rehabilitate the urban fabric um, sitting adjacent to the park. So Samya's home really quickly became chosen as one of the homes where they would experiment with this project and fully rehabilitate it as it was sitting on the garbage dump. Um, and so, you know, her life, um, this was pretty transformative for her life. And so we talked through, you know, the project, what it was doing, and she was walking me through her house, showing me all the things that they did to rehabilitate the home. Um, and then all of a sudden, as we start talking about plumbing, things change pretty dramatically um, or, you know, to a degree. She um, wants to tell me a story, but is worried about saying something negative about a project that she really appreciates. Um, but eventually she does tell me that she found it really strange that they put in water pumps to be used by a number of um, people you know, the water pumps that would bring water to her to her um, home, uh, but would only she would only be able to use them if she coordinates with her neighbors because they're all connected. So um, whenever one is using the water pump, others can't. Um, and so I, I asked her, do you know why you have shared water pumps now when you didn't before? And she's like, you know what? It's a very strange thing. I don't understand it, um, but I don't want to complain about a project that has done so much to me. So I filed it away. Okay, this is a strange, odd thing that I should ask the architects about. Um, So I meet the urban planner, uh, Sammy, who's one of the urban planners working on this project. And I ask him about a number of oddities that I heard of, Um, but the water pumps come up and I'm like, so why did you um, install these shared water pumps? And you know, my expectation at this point is I'm gonna be hearing a very technical kind of logical answer to this. Uh, But instead, he has this really interesting angle, uh, which I really have to read out um, if you're okay with that in the, from the book, because the quote is just too good. Um, So he says, and I quote, our purpose was that you learn to coordinate with your neighbors. So, for example, when we installed water pumps, we would find that in a building with six residents, each of the residents wants to install their own water pump we would refuse such requests because if they can't resolve issues around using a water pump, then there's no sense in them restoring the house altogether. In other words, they have to talk to each other, end quote. (laughs) Wow. That was to me like, you know, I'm studying politics and all I heard here was societal engineering screaming out from water pumps, right? And I was like, whoa, this is gold. Um, So then I start to dig deeper, right? Like what are these, why do you care about community? Why do you want these um, people to be collaborative? And interestingly, the argument doesn't go where we normally think of when we talk about community, like the realm of trust or or any of the other things that we usually study um, in relation to community. But instead, our conversation turns entirely to real estate. And now we're talking about property markets and how what they're interested in is that people don't sell their homes so that they have invested residents. Um, who are going to stay in Darbil Ahmar in spite of all of the rehabilitation and so on. And it starts to dawn on me that what's really at work here is a political project to safeguard affordable housing. Uh, Now, I sit with this a while, and of course, it takes me a while to get here. Um, But I also start seeing it in some of the other neighborhoods uh, and some of the other sites uh, where I'm working, and I start to see something really interesting where over and over again, we start out talking about architecture and urban planning, but we end up talking about real estate markets and property markets. Um, and so what is actually happening, I would argue, is a, an intervention in real estate markets and how they function. So all of you know these markets that we talk about when we talk about neoliberalization as being financialized and sort of um, you know transformed into these um, capitalist uh, projects, wealth accumulating as if it's like one one project, uh, one directional project um, of of wealth accumulation. Actually, there's so much happening in terms of what people would like to do um, with that housing with that property, the kind of political projects that are motivating them and the work they're doing to manipulate these property uh, markets um, in relation to these very different political projects. So I saw some projects that were really interested in affordable housing, safeguarding affordable housing. But on the other hand, I also saw um, some projects that were very much interested in wealth accumulation and creation, but unlike what we hear Um, all the time they were actually trying to distort free market dynamics to create that wealth rather than uh, play the game of the free market right and so I became really interested in okay what is happening here what are they trying to do with the market and my argument is that the main thing that is at work here is a contestation over value and what we care about is um You know, what is being contested is who claims the value of these homes, how they claim it, um, how they relate to it. And in that sense, it kind of creates almost boundaries to who buys and sells in particular spaces. And that's what I call particularistic value. Um, So... So building and and kind of the idea here is to then understand the making of particularistic value and how it shapes the city because it is made and it is contested and is claimed through these very subtle urban design planning techniques rather than as large battles over housing, say, in a council or, you know, a a town hall meeting, right? Uh, What we're seeing actually is urban planners and architects Working through um, all of these techniques that are meant to create that particularistic value and manipulate real estate markets ultimately. Um, So the book traces how this happens um, and shows kind of the working of the market in that sense, but also shows the ways in which, you know the work that goes into depoliticizing what I call is actually a class struggle here um, through housing actually gets continuously repoliticized as the weight of this large kind of class politics and and these political projects gets placed on these very tiny kind of minute micro techniques of urban planning design. um, And basically the what I'm saying is that the burden of these politics gets placed on the intimate, invisible, um, and uh, uh, sort of um, uh, private crevices of the city, and that's uh, that's really kind of the the main argument of the book. Thank
0: you for that. Um, so you've already uh, mentioned ethnography. You told us about uh, a couple of your interlocutors. Um, do you mind talking to us a little bit more about the sort of research that you did for the book?
1: Of course. Um, so the book I, for the book, I did a multi-sided ethnography of six um, urban transformation projects, three in each of Istanbul and Cairo. Um, and I was looking at large urban transformation projects that were meant to um, transform housing infrastructure, public spaces, um, that were taking place around the 2000s um, in both cities. And I was interested in projects that were being driven, funded, um, uh, and so on, by a multiplicity of actors who sit on different, um, have different positionalities vis-a-vis what we call a property market. Um, so that's how I came to which neighborhoods I chose to work with. Um, being uh, in Istanbul, I looked at uh, Sulukle, Tarlabashe, and Fener Balat. And actually, the image on the cover uh, comes from Fener Balat. Um, and the, in, in Cairo, I looked at downtown Cairo or al Banat, and um, Darb al Ahmar and Gemerigan neighborhoods. Um, Now, one of the things that was important for me was that I would be looking at the formal city rather than informal city. Um, So much of the work that's done on Middle Eastern cities, um, at least for a long time, has been on the informality. And I was really interested in all the dynamics that are happening in the formal city, um, especially because I was really interested in legal infrastructures uh, as well. So, So that was... Part of that, and then of course there's the question of why Istanbul and Cairo. Well, um, I was really, uh, you know, interested in big cities. Uh, I wanted to see as much of the layered mess that goes into the making of these projects, the contestation around property around housing um, and as I said I'm coming to this from uh you know I, I had gone to college in Cairo um, from an interest in inequality and it felt like big metropolitan cities in the Middle East um, and I had the language skills for um, a- of Arabic and Turkish and so it made sense to, to study Cairo and Istanbul
0: and of course, one of the things that makes the empirics in the book so rich is that you, um, you know, your fieldwork involved over 200 interviews, um, hundreds of hours of participant observation, and then also hundreds of documents uh, yeah. that uh, that you collected as well. So uh, a very impressive um Amount of research uh, that went into this. Um, So diving in uh, the first part of the book traces the making of property markets Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, um, each of the chapters in this part. Weaves, weaves together a lot of different threads um, and it, it may be difficult to go into all of them, uh, but if you can maybe highlight uh, a few aspects uh, to tell us what what did the process of the making of property markets look like in Cairo to begin?
1: Of course. Um, yeah, so the book is organized in two parts. Um, and this first part is meant to take a long durée view of the making of property markets and especially of the making of value around property markets in the city. So, how is property valued by a variety of stakeholders, residents, um, whether they be tenants or owners or uh, people who just navigate neighborhoods for work and so on and so forth? Um, and um, in Cairo, and I, I, I trace kind of as you're as you're saying, I trace a, a variety of um <laughs> uh different kind of layers of of processes that come together to produce uh what these what kind of these contestation over the value of the property looks like over time. Um, And in Cairo, I go back actually quite a bit um, (laughs) to talk about uh, the remaking of the city um, in the 1800s. Um, And I'm especially uh, one of, you know, and and I'm tying together a number of things here. um, But early on, I talk about how the changing water landscapes in the city. Transform uh, how property gets valued, especially within uh, the walled um, hi- uh, historical city. Uh, so, and that impacts Gemaliya and Darb al Ahmar, um, where, uh, you know, homes there, because the city's geography and into- uh, topography changes quite a bit because outside of the walled city where a lot of land now becomes reclaimed and livable and making neighborhoods like downtown Cairo um, there's an exodus from that walled city that um, creates a, a a very different kind of, uh, demography within the city as, as rural migrants, for example, move in, uh, move into some of these houses that were historically like single home that turn into, um, uh, almost uh, subdivided into, you know, as many as 20 homes. Um, so it's a very different, uh, it's a, it's a pretty early on that these neighborhoods get transformed in this way. Um. And uh, then other neighborhoods like downtown Cairo have their own uh, legacies. And I talk quite a bit about the relationship between um, how um, colonial capitalism shapes the city and especially downtown um, and its histories and how meaning making around Um, different, you know, experiences of colonial capitalism, uh, but also the violence of decolonization shapes um, who comes to value these parts of the cities at different times. Um, And then I talk about, um, and then one of the key things that changes um, and has quite an impact on the city is rent control. Um, I trace, so, so Cairo has, um up to up to now, actually, uh, old rent control, um, what is called the old rent control laws, uh, which allows for um, people to rent their homes um, without any um, inflation uh, consideration for inflation. And so some people are renting their homes at almost similar rates for, you know decades and decades. Uh, And they can actually uh, pass these contracts on to um, the next generation. It used to be limitless. Now it's only one generation that can inherit these rent control contracts. Um, But that actually means uh, that, you know, tenants have been in the same homes now since uh, the 50s and the 60s in some cases. Um, that changed quite dramatically in 1996 uh, when a new rent control law was introduced. Um, and that becomes important. Um, I try I, I weave in this chapter, and I'll let you read more about this. how then kind of um, removing, uh, you know, for any new rentals after 1996, all of these old rent control um, laws uh, no longer stand. And so then it becomes a whole kind of process of um, who can, you know, uh, annul uh, their con- current contracts and so that they um, can have their homes on new rent control and so on and so forth. Um, but the idea is to say that, you know, these transformations and these legal frameworks, which I trace to the actually World War II and then socialist transformations in, in the decolonizing regimes, um, shapes the urban fabric itself. Because people, um, owners over time, get to, uh, you know, get to see their, their buildings as a burden rather than as an asset. Um, And this is a huge thing because then the relationship that tenants and owners have to their buildings is quite different in Cairo um, than what we're going to see uh, in Istanbul. And it's much easier to buy off that property um, in in Cairo than it is um, in Istanbul for large uh, and heavily capitalized projects uh, like the ones coming and doing uh, urban transformation talk a little bit about that. I talk about the intersections of that with the earthquake of 1992, because I'm really interested in how disaster and its management shapes the city, shapes that kind of value. Um, And then uh, I also talk about um, the flow of industry in and out of um, formal and informal neighborhoods um, in Cairo um, and kind of shapes, again, how people value um, their property. Um, One of the... uh, really interesting things that I want to kind of highlight in this chapter is thinking about meaning and how it shapes that way in which people come to value their property. Um, so a lot of the time, um, there's a whole kind of group of people, um, that get dubbed kind of the rural migrants in the city. Um, and they never lose that, um, you know, uh, that sort of, uh, being named migrants, right. Um, regardless of how long they may be there. Um, and I want to, and I talk in the chapter a little bit about actually how incredibly rooted they are, um, in the city. And, uh, I'll bring in an anecdote here, um, to, to show you what I mean by that. Um, so, in one of the cases that i was looking at uh, people um, who lived in one of those big mansions that i mentioned inside of gamalia neighborhood in the historic city um but that had been subdivided into 25 different homes get relocated outside of the city um and one of the um one of the daughters of one of the men that gets relocated, and they actually get given um, building or uh, their own homes outside of the city, so twenty kilometers out. And people, you would assume that, you know, you're a renter, you've been seen as sort of a migrant in the city for a long time. and Now you're getting to be a property owner, that this is probably a great deal. Um, but actually, the daughter saw this as a major catastrophe. And she, she saw that her dad saw it as a major catastrophe. And she related to me, you know, he was in the new city, he was in, you know, I'm paraphrasing her wording here, but he was in the new uh, apartment for three months and then he died. End of story, right? For her, there was an absolute connection between, you know, his entire livelihood uh, being in a particular place. Even though there are probably a number of ways to explain that death, uh, but to her, he was very rooted um, in in the city. And uh, throughout this chapter, I talk a lot about that as well. Um, You'll see kind of a an example of um, someone who runs a coffee shop and how. when he dies, uh, you know, he had planted some trees around his coffee shop. And um, people, uh, you know, relate uh, in later on that they saw the trees die right as he died, because of how they saw him as rooted as like a core of this, um, of the neighborhood. And again, he's someone who was seen as a migrant, who itinerant, but again, like the core of the neighborhood. So um, I also want to highlight kind of the ways in which a lot of these processes have to be understood from the lens of meaning making and how people come to understand place um, in order to really get at what we mean by value.
0: Thank you for that. Um, so let's, uh,
1: let's move to Istanbul. Um,
0: what, what can you tell us about the, the evolution and the development of property markets there?
1: Um, Of course. So again, I'm layering a number of um, processes together. um, And there I start by thinking about um, the Republican city. Um, And the Republican project, basically, Ataturk's relationship to Istanbul is pretty formative to how it changes. Um, One of the first things I talk about is the peripheralization of Istanbul within a larger Turkey, um, seen as the seat of the empire, as the Achilles' heel of the country. Um, It becomes... um, you know, uh, demoted, I guess, from, uh, capital, uh, when Ankara becomes the capital. And that has a huge impact on the city, an exodus of a political economic elite. Um, and then over time, um, it also becomes, uh, uh, You know, you see major exodus of minorities, um, especially after massive um, uh, violence against Greek and Armenian and Jewish minorities in the city in the 50s and the 60s. Um, So by the 50s and the 60s, you have quite. transformed city in terms of that exodus and a lot of unoccupied buildings. Um, at the same time, you see Istanbul being reintegrated into the political economy of the country through a massive industrialization program through the Democrat Party. Um, so I talk about that quite a bit and the way in which Istanbul gets integrated as a regional hub rather than a national hub in this moment. And um, it becomes kind of an industrial front um, and the way in which it attracts working class populations. Um, At the same time, I trace how literary movements um, create uh, this sort of, um, you know, an emotional story, an emotional narrative about Istanbul being the city of huzun or uh, melancholy, um, and talk about the, the actual kind of material transformations that come with a city that has that irritable relationship to its past um and the way in which Hazun was mobilized in itself as a, a political project um, up against how ataturk was, um, uh, and you know, uh, later um, leaders were were actually performing modernization in Turkey. Um, so there's all of that happening at the same time. But eventually, what it means is that you have a very strong um, working class uh, population, uh, not just occupying all of these buildings in the center of the city um, that were historically seen as quite elite. Uh, spaces. Um, and you get very strong electioneering campaigns that offer them uh, retroactive deeds. And so eventually they become propertied working classes in the middle of the city. And uh, as opposed to Cairo's burdened uh, landed kind of uh, class. You have a very uh, sort of aspirational class here. Um, And it's the politics of aspiration and, um, you know, uh, class formation that looks very, very different that also creates a major confrontation with the government when heavily capitalized developers try to to develop this um, area of the city. And so the transfer of property to highly capitalized actors is much more difficult, much more violent, much more confrontational in Turkey uh, than in in Istanbul, than in Cairo, mostly because of how you see all of these things coming together to shape um, uh, the, the way property is valued. And from here, I would just say that basically the two chapters together are hopefully transforming how we even we think not just about the making of property markets but the making of class itself i'm hoping that we can now start to think about class as a much more dynamic um uh, uh category but also um, the way in which spatial material affective transformations of the city are formative of of, of the cl- of class formation and its strengths in the
0: city so moving into part 2 of the book um Part two is where you really focus on redistributive uh, markets. Um, so l- let's begin with heritage preservation. How does that play into this?
1: Of course. Um, so part two, uh, as you say, is organized around um Basically themes, right? So there was one world in which um, I have, you know, these six neighborhoods. Uh, I should pair them up as a as a good comparativist um, uh, through, you know, a predetermined um, pairing and present them as as those paired case studies. Um, I did try that, by the way, in my uh, dissertation. Did not find it very helpful theoretically. Um, and so I went a different tack um, for the book, and which I found much more fruitful. Um, and basically, I said, well, if I'm interested in this work of manipulating markets, let me follow the practices and the 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 kind of processes that i think are being mobilized and deployed to manipulate the market um, and from there i saw three really big ones um as you're saying heritage and then community and then the transformation of um, visible and public spaces um so the chapter on heritage um uh looks at a case of Fener Balat in Istanbul, uh, where I saw you know, the making of heritage as really central as an urban planning tactic um, in producing, um, in the making of a political project um, for safeguarding affordable housing um, in the center of the city. And what was really interesting about this um, is that when you come at it just looking at the heritage work, you kind of miss this. But when you go back a little bit and see the genealogy of this project, you realize that um, the project in Fenerbahalat starts um, from a habitat conference that takes place in Istanbul in 1996 that was primarily concerned about um, the quality of life for working populations in the center of the city. And it was there that they decided to integrate language around affordable housing with sustaining kind of heritage and and so on in the city. Um, And it was really interesting because the activists that organized around Habitat and took this project. And one of the tactics that I'm arguing they went for is that they decided the best way to safeguard affordable housing is to produce a whole new framework for understanding its value around heritage. And they campaigned UNESCO and then eventually the EU to fund a heritage preservation project um, in Fener and Balat. Um, and so here you can see um, what's really interesting is that um, what I you know trace in the in the chapter is the ways in which um, historical accuracy becomes really really important for um, the EU and as they as they actually um enact the project because uh, and I argue that if you're going to mobilize heritage as a class project right class-based struggle um Heritage itself cannot be a politicized category. Um, and that's very, very difficult to do. And when the EU comes to a neighborhood and ensemble that historically had been populated by minorities, in this case, Jewish and Greek minorities in, uh, in Balat and Fener, respectively. Um, and, uh, and what you see is that. This part of the argument is a little bit convoluted, so I'm going to take it step by step. So what I'm arguing is that if you're going to have a a project, um, a political project to manipulate markets, operate subtly, it has to operate in a depoliticized space. But heritage is very difficult to depoliticize in this case, right? Um, So what I'm arguing is that this only starts to work or be envisioned as something that could work um, from leaning on a long history of transforming all heritage work around the world, the entire heritage industry, claiming that what they're doing is not so much the valorization of particular monuments that valorize particular histories over others, but rather to say that entire landscapes, right, Everything that you can call historical should be valued. And it's what I trace as the environmentalization of history or heritage. And um, and it's leaning on that, that then these kinds of projects uh, claim to depoliticize their work or try to depoliticize their work very difficult um, to actually do it, but they try to depoliticize their work um, in heritage and marry it to a project of um, social justice in a sense. uh, through that work. Now, what you see throughout the chapter is a repoliticization of that politics, right? Um, and there's a constant coming back to, uh, you know, which histories are being valorized here, how, what is this heritage preservation project doing? And what you see the architects and the urban planners doing a lot is saying, you know, uh, so concerned with historical accuracy because, again, this is about the accuracy of heritage not about which history is being um, protected right and so they're uh really interested in the accuracy of electrical wiring inside homes right how many bathrooms you have according to the original plan and not this plan and so on and so forth um which absolutely puzzles people because they're like who cares about what's happening inside my home the tourists can only see the outside but it's far more kind of um, uh, it's a it's a it's a far deeper almost project uh, than that, right? Um, and so, one of the anecdotes I'll bring in to show you just the way that this becomes repoliticized is uh, when we see um, Hikmet and Zeynep at the beginning of that chapter contest. Um, you know, the EU comes and says we're we're happy to fund your your the rejuvenation or rehabilitation of your house, and they actually reject the money. Um, uh, or at least half of it. Uh, they reject the doing of the insides of their home because they say, you know, the EU wanted to change some really fundamental things about how we live. And one of those was that they wanted to remove the second bathroom that we've built. Um, mm-hmm. And what was really interesting is how he um phrases this, I'm gonna use his quote. He says, quote, if we have visitors, uh, they stay on the second floor, and it gets pretty crowded. Past owners may not have had the same need for a bathroom. I mean, in a way, the setup meets our Islamic values, end quote. So this is really interesting. So Islam jumps into the story here when we were talking about the design of um, of these buildings, and these past owners he's talking about were Greek. And so there's this whole kind of, you know, my... Religious politics seeping in, but as I argue in the book, the repoliticization itself is coming through the crevices of the city. Not as a whole big narrative about, you know, minorities and, and their place in a, in a cosmopolitan Turkey, say, but instead as a conversation around bathrooms. Um, and that's what happens when this, this work of the market and these interventions are happening through these subtle spaces of the city.
0: Thank you for that. So um, let's go to your second theme that you mentioned, which is uh, community. Uh, can you tell us about that?
1: Of course. So in the chapter on community, um, I come back to this opening anecdote that I started um, with in this podcast. Um, And you see a a number and basically tracing how a number of actors mobilize community and building community to intervene and, and manipulate real estate markets. And um, I showcase how the Aga Khan Foundation is doing it, so a lot more of the societal engineering that you saw early on. Um, but then I also look and, and investigate how a corporate developer called the Smale Consortium is trying to transform downtown Cairo, mobilize a notion of a community of strangers um, to also try to shape the, the neighborhood and particular ways that produce very soft boundaries to who comes in and out and who wants to buy or sell in that neighborhood um, and so we and we get to see kind of this notion of community being mobilized in a way that is very particularistic and so it lends itself i would argue um, to produce that boundary setting of inside and outside. Um, And so we see both political projects, wealth accumulation, as well as affordable housing, uh, leaning on community to create those boundaries, which then, you know, I use the chapter to intervene in a larger conversation about how we've been studying community as a space for trust and so on, to re kind of flip that a little bit and talk about how boundary setting is tied to community building and how actually a lot of these capitalists market making projects are leaning on community not as a trust maker but as a boundary maker Um, so that's kind of the big argument of the chapter within the chapter one of the things that I also do is unpack um, how layered community is, so you'd see how sort of experts um, understand community quite differently, uh, even as they're all working on the same thing, the unintended consequences of building community in particular ways, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. So I'm going to remind listeners that there's obviously a lot more to each of these chapters. Uh, there's a whole chapter on visible public spaces, which we're not going to get into now, but it's fascinating. Um, so just a reminder to listeners that we're really just skimming the surface here, um, and they really need to pick up the book to to appreciate the, the richness of the analysis there. Um, so, Sarah, I wanted to ask you, th- this is a very um ambitious project it's a very mm-hmm. wide ranging project um were there any challenges that you faced while you were researching or writing this book
1: um it's almost the flip side were there any non challenges <laughs> <laughs> um yes uh it's a number of things right um one of the things uh that was pretty difficult to do, um, is setting up an interdisciplinary project, uh, within a disciplinary space. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone sitting in a political science department that, um, it is, there are a lot of boundary settings. Um, there's a lot of boundary setting in, in the discipline. And so pushing for opening up those boundaries for looking, um, at, at a, different angles, but also epistemologically um, taking a critical lens to some of these projects was, it took (laughs) work. I did have a very supportive team of advisors who helped me through that, um, but it certainly was not easy and was not easy to go um, then sort of Go on the market, find the right publisher, and so on and so forth. Although, and all of that did pan out. It did pan out wonderfully because then I got to be in spaces and work with a publisher like Duke that really understood the book, um, what I was doing. Um, so, fight the good fight. Is that if if someone out there is trying to do something like this, uh, it will pan out, but it does take work. Um, but in terms of the project itself, it's also the multi-sided ethnography is not something to be taken lightly. (laughs) um, The fieldwork itself was challenging, but I would say that was the easiest part of the challenge. It's figuring out what to do with it. That was, wow, like quite a thing. This book was probably written three times um, before it started to make any sense. Um, And it's because there are so many moving parts, um, so many things to think about. Um, And it's when I liberated myself from, say, like, you know, predetermined ideas about what a comparative project is or how to think about theory and theory building and really let the ethnography speak Um and actually, it was in tandem with teaching um, and teaching classes on political economy and urbanism together was so great um, and informative for how um, I finally started to make sense of this material. But as the revisions were coming in, the peer reviews, um, I was told time and again, right, like, we really need to find a way to guide your readers in the book so that they don't get lost because of how many moving parts you have. And that took work. Um, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to decide <laughs> how well that was done, but that I, certainly I was, was a actually, big challenge.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, I mean, kudos to you for, for writing a book that it has so many moving parts, but where they also fit together so, so, so well. Um, it's it's really quite impressive. Um, so, you. And, you know, uh, I, I wish we had time uh, to talk uh, about this, but I'll just let listeners know that, you know, towards the end of the book, you get a little bit into more recent events and you have this intriguing link uh, to populism Um that you bring up, um, but you know we, we've, Sarah, we've taken up uh, so much of your time. So I just have one final question for you, which is, um, you know, this book is now out in the world. Congratulations! Um, what are you working on now?
1: Um, great question. Uh, so I am moving uh, further out from the city uh, and have decided to focus a little bit more on infrastructure now, and I'm doing a project on the political economy of digital infrastructures. Uh, So I'm following the cloud and its materiality, um, and I'm looking specifically at um, uh, Amazon Web Services, but a number of other projects, and looking um, at um, these projects and their linkages from headquarters um, to uh, Africa and the Middle East, um, and then also really interested And thinking about how um, the linkages between the materiality of the cloud link up to how we think about the economy and the making of the economy through those new technologies. So yeah, moving a, a little further out, although still really mu- very much at the intersection of critical political economy and geography.
0: That sounds like such a fascinating project. Um, if it results in a book, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that. Um, Sara, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you, Lamise, and thank you all for listening.
0: The, the book is Sarah Kazez's Politics in the Crevices: Urban Design and the Making of Property Markets in Cairo and Istanbul, published by Duke University Press in 2023. Thank you for listening. <laughs>